So I got a cookbook for Christmas. You too? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, ABC One person who listens to quirky podcasts whilst doing your morning run on the Waltham Forest wetlands with protected bird species flapping around your head. Of course you got a cookbook for Christmas. Mine came wrapped in this amazing hamper of goodies from my foodie bro. Basically those little jars and packets of deliciousness which you see on the waitress shelves or at Borough Market. You know, those, those little jars which on further examination you might, if you're me, exclaim, I'm not paying a fiver for a jar of sliced pickles. I can get a jar of delicious pickles for less than a quid from Aldi and slice them with my own paring knife and my own handmade hands. Thank you very much. And then suddenly, on Boxing Day, you find yourself slathering from Dorset with Love Pickles on anything and everything you can find in the pantry, and even wondering whether to write some fan mail to this company, because God damn it, those pickles are good. Mainly because they remind you, which is to say me, of pickled herring, which as a vegan I no longer consume, but still crave that inimitable sweet and sour tang, which also bears some nostalgic connection to my nominally Jewish childhood and the ongoing pangs of never again being able to order a chopped herring bagel from Bagel Bake on Brick Lane. I also have some nostalgia for the mouthfeel of fish flesh that's been a pickling for some time. And now I can have that every day and the fishies can have their fishy lives back, so win-win. But anyway, cookbooks, yes. So, I don't need to tell you what's great about cookbooks. The gorgeous photographs of the food, on handmade ceramic tableware, artfully set off by some weathered wood, or a, a calico tablecloth, the ooh and the ah and the mmm, that looks good. Ooh, look at this one, sunken ginger and spelt cake. Oh yeah, now we're talking, bring it on. We all know what's great about cookbooks, and that's why they sell by the ton. But the problem with cookbooks, even a cookbook that you have been hoping and praying that someone would buy you ever since it came out in 2019, I'm talking here about Mira Soda's East, of course, the problem with cookbooks is that we all, I believe, fall prey to the paradox of choice. The, the paradox, paradox of choice, choice, as Barry Schwartz calls it in his excellent non-cookbook book. The paradox of choice is exemplified no better in how we engage with recipes in general, even those in the wild. Say you buy a Saturday newspaper, The Guardian, of course, although People seem to have a need for others too. And the lifestyle section of that newspaper has in it one or two vegan recipes penned by the ever-brilliant Miss Soda herself, which is another good reason to read and buy The Guardian if you don't already have reasons to hand. Well, you and I are probably much more likely to make one of those veggie vegan recipes on the day or the week following the finding of them, rather than when presented with a whole book of utterly delicious, but also where do I start options. And this, by the way, is not just podcast jibber-jabber, although it is that too. Uh, I'm talking here about thorough, randomized, double-blind research which has been done on this phenomenon. I'm, I'm referring somewhat haphazardly to, to the, 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 the classic 2015 paper by Keegan Laurie and Hoffenegger in the Journal of Behavioral Ecology, a paper entitled The Sociocultural Context of Eating and Food Choice. Check it out. Good read. But basically, what... Keegan, Laurie and Hoffenegger outline is how a whole bunch of cognitive biases come into play when we start paging through a newly gifted cookbook, especially expectation and confirmation biases. So as soon as we pick up the new cookbook, 
because we've had certain positive and not so positive experiences with foodstuffs or dishes before, or even a whole national cuisine, maybe sampled at a restaurant, uh, there is no way that our minds can come fresh to this material. Some recipes, as you have probably noticed in your new cookbook, uh, jump off the page like, like crickets, just going like, yummy, 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 put that in my tummy. Uh, for example, sweet potato cakes with kimchi mayo. Uh, that's some serious cricket delirium on page 22. Or what about um, the silken tofu recipe on page 167? Or maybe I should say, what about the silken tofu recipe on page 167? Because this, my friends, is not just any silken tofu recipe. This is a silken tofu recipe with pine nuts and pickled chilies. The tofu slathered, puddled in a gorgeous dark amber jus, which also doubles as this kind of mouth-watering glaze of sesame oil, white wine vinegar, and light soy sauce with tiny red curlicues of pickled chili nestling among the foresty pearls of pine nutsiness. Although, someone on Mumsnet recently said that they taste of car air freshener, and now, I can't shake that proprioceptive thought out of my head and off my tongue. Let's say, though, that every great cookbook, and soda delivers the great ones, I also have Fresh India, which is my Bible, every great cookbook suggests on delivery to its recipient a good handful of cook-me-now recipes, which we might actually get round to making at some point in the following year. Although, do we? Mm, discuss. But, Every great cookbook also has a number of recipes which are a bit like, hmm, okay, yeah, okay, I can see that working, yeah, okay, tomato, pistachio, and saffron tart, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, tandoori, broccoli, black and sweet corn with uh, miso butter, okay, all right, I'll give, I'll give that to you, I'll give that to myself, perhaps, as well as a whole bunch, and I think the majority here, maybe, a whole bunch of recipes, maybe even 60% of the book, that fit into a purely conceptual category, which is to say, they tickle in some way our, um, our conceptual taste buds. But whatever it is that connects the, the mental taste buds with that more visceral, I want to eat you now vibe, and let's face it, there's a, there's a bit of a Venn crossover here in terms of sex and food, but we'll come to that. Somehow, that connection just isn't made for most of the recipes in any new cookbook. I mean, this is a hypothesis, but, 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 I'm, I'm sticking with it. Like, for example, onigiri stuffed with walnut miso. That's on page 25, by the way. Uh, and for, for some reason, doesn't speak to me. Maybe it speaks to you, doesn't speak to me. Perhaps, because I'm quite a visual person, uh, you know, sorry David Loftus, who took the amazing photographs for East, but you know, you did the best with the material at hand, but uh, looks a bit boring. Four balls of rice enribbed with a bit of nori. Yeah, I know the good stuff's inside, but but still. And yet, of course, we don't actually need food to speak to us. That's what podcasts are for. What I want from a plate of food is something fresh and funky and without any non-human animal or human animal, animal flesh making up that funkiness. Something that tastes so good, is so delicious, I almost can't bear the pleasure of eating it. You want to be like, excuse my French, but this is a, po a culinary podcast. You want to be like, fuck me, this is amazing. This is so good, 
this is so fucking good, I need to have seconds even before I finished having the first, and of course I can always have seconds and thirds because I live alone and cook mainly for myself and Max. And Max isn't one of my species, so he unfortunately can't eat most of the food in this cookbook. So all good. I don't know about you, but I live to be bowled over. If I could transform myself into a bowling ball and be released from someone's slightly sweaty fingers along a silky path of oiled wood to boing-boing against some nervous skittles, I would quite happily swap that for my current limb-laden embodiment, at least for a month or two, maybe longer. So, with that in mind, I find it a bit sad that we've got all of these books on our shelves with recipes in them that our tongues and our bellies and our bodies might be utterly enchanted and nourished by, bowled over in a bowl, as it were, and yet being also all too often risk-averse safety seekers when it comes to matters culinary and non-culinary, we seem to deny ourselves more often than not something that is truly new, truly different. Something so new that there's a good chance we might not get it, we might not get the joke of the dish, as it were. I'm talking here about I guess I'm talking here about the the never-before-tasted new, something potentially disappointing, but also potentially life-enhancing or changing, or at least meal-changing. I think this return to to the safe and comfortable happens especially when our lives and times are weird and worrisome and not very safe feeling, as they are right now. I'm in the kitchen working my way through a pile of groceries with a bucket of flash floor cleaner and listening to people on the radio talk about how mental it is to live under lockdown. How, how, how crazy this is, yeah, that we're all staying in all the time, that we're all you know, cutting our own hair, that we're not seeing anyone, that we're cooking for ourselves night after night after night. And it just feels to me a lot like hearing tourists describe a town where I always live. Yes, these are times where we might stick with our favourite chums our old and comforting culinary friends, rather than pushing the envelope, as it were. Because even though I pride myself on being someone who understands food, I think, and the cooking of food in a way that, uh, I don't know, an an Inuk understands igloos, and the way that a a dog understands napping, in a way that we all now understand the sharp sting of hand sanitizer and the the accompanying thought of, Jesus, this is going to destroy my hands. Although I understand all of that stuff, I have been lazy. I've been a lazy, lazy cook in 2020. And I'm now going to blame it all on my, on my psychotherapy clients because why take responsibility for a personal failing if you can blame someone else, right? I mean, that's the first rule of Fight Club. I mean, therapy, uh, especially if you're a couple. In fact, I've never met a couple in my consulting room that doesn't run their relationship by that rule 24-7. Seventh rule. Fights will go on as long as they have to. The couples are very committed to this ethos. Go couples. So, let me play the blame game for a moment. I often work until about 9 o'clock in the evenings because that is when people most want therapy. And at about 9.30, I am not usually in the mood for starting to cook. So, I've become, in the last year, like a lot of people, I suspect, more of a weekend cook making recipes designed for four or eight people, which I can then freeze in portions for the other three or seven people who I am not required to feed. And then during the week, it's either a matter of defrosting something I've already cooked or subsisting on a bit of this, a bit of that, you know, the old favorites, the kind of things you can 
probably make with your eyes closed by now and and quickly to boot which is the boot we most certainly want on our feet uh, at half past nine at night uh, you know I don't know pressure cooker curries stir fries risottos lots of ramen options vegan bangers and mash oh and of course like everyone else I've become an aficionado, which is entirely the wrong word for this, an aficionado of vegan meat substitutes, which can now be found in the frozen food section everywhere and uh, are proliferating faster than face masks with interesting patterns on them. And indeed, you can almost, almost fool yourself, I do, into thinking you're eating something tasty and nourishing with a salad or a stir fry set alongside some barbecued soya configured stuff on the side tasting or resembling ribs or pulled pork in order to satisfy that inner carnivore the uh the umami hunter so how to get out of this late capitalist food processing end is nigh bind you know the sort of can cook but can't be asked especially after another year of covid uh, uh just about to happen Blah dilemma. Well, let me play you a voice note I sent to my brother on Christmas Eve when I was sitting in my lounge-come-therapy den, uh, listening to the Fleet Foxes and uh, drinking one of those delicious non-alcoholic beers that came with Bro's food hamper the day before, Nirvana Lager, om, um, maybe a tiny bit stoned, although I don't, I don't think that's obvious. And this is the moment, right here, right now, where my slightly more elasticated mind, shall we say, assisted by a little bit of THC, came up with a, a cunning plan. So, um, Maxie and I are just sitting here chilling and listening to uh, Shaw. Say hello, Max. Did you hear that? He said hello. And um, thinking about some, some podcast ideas for 2021. Uh, and I had this idea of... Uh, sort of inspired by your Christmas prezi, which is uh, take a cookbook and cook every recipe in it from start to finish. Uh, And um, call it, I don't know, cooking the books, cook cook that book, uh, cook this book, cook my book, something like that. What do you think? And here's my brother on Christmas Day preparing a capon for his family Christmas dinner, little ponce, actually big ponce, he's much taller than me, my brother, um, essentially egging me on. Uh, there's something in that idea, you know. Um, you call it cook the book. Cook the book. Yeah, I've sort of said to, to Carl's actually, don't buy me loads of cookbooks because I sort of feel like I've got so many cookbooks um, and cookbooks that have been undercooked, books that have been undercooked. And here I am again, egged on and, and ready to go. So here's the plan. Mira Soda's East is the book I'm going to cook. It has 120 recipes in it and I want to do a podcast episode for every single recipe. That means I will need to make about two to three recipes a week and I guess other than the first few these will be mini-ish episode audio morsels. I'm also going to try and challenge myself to do something a little bit different with each 
episode. Otherwise, it's just going to become, you know, here's me buying the ingredients, here's me making the dish, here's me stuffing this delicious chow into my big fat gob. And I'm, I'm already bored by that description, just, just the description alone. Gemini. Also, you can see that sort of stuff on YouTube. Uh, they're called cooking videos, and I don't really have the patience for them, even with the visuals to keep me interested. I'm the sort of person who, when I watch MasterChef, which I do, I usually hang out with the crew <clears throat> whilst the task is set, the ingredients selected, and then I just fast forward to Greg's voluminous culinary oh. orgasms, think, you know, when Harry oh. met Sally, and John's quieter ones, again, you know, think when Harry met Sally, but John, Billy Crystal, Greg, Meg Ryan, you get, you get the idea. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, oh, yes. my plan is yes. to... Yes. Oh. Yes. 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 So, yeah, yes. I'm all about cutting to the chase. Oh. And, uh, and I'm going to do that by making each dish and each episode in a, I don't know, in a sort of fully embodied, conscious, unifocal way, if that's possible. Which means, essentially, I think... Buying all the ingredients with care and gratitude and some thought for those who grew them and delivered them to my purchase venue. And not just buying them from supermarkets if I can, which is where I normally buy ingredients from. Also, doing all my prep and cooking without a podcast or an audiobook playing in my ears. To, to, to just give the task my absolute single-minded full attention the kind of single-minded full attention I'm giving to you right now, talking to you through this, this screen into your ears. And similarly in terms of savouring the food itself, because I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I didn't eat with a, with a phone in one hand or watching a film or other, some other distraction on the go and basically missing out, missing out, cheating myself out of 95% of the flavor and savor of whatever it was I might have been putting into my mouth at the time. And that's a lot of missing out. I won't be using the M word on this podcast. I don't mean missing out. I, 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 I probably use that a lot. Uh, um, the other one. Um, as I think it's become sort of overused, over-memed, over-freighted with all sorts of cultural baggage in the last decade or two, but I will be using other words that maybe point to the kinds of experiences we all want to be having with food, which is one of our chief pleasures in life, if you think about it, albeit one we rob ourselves of in so many insidious ways, as we do with sex, no surprise there, and maybe I'll talk about that too. So for both categories, I'll be using words like savoring, reveling, relishing, and hopefully some other well-chosen haute cuisine terms like this is fucking delicious. The initial plan was to start on page one and just barrel through, but this would mean that I would be eating rice dishes, page 126 to 157, for a month without let up. And although I do love that grain, a month of rice, hmm... Not so sure my bells would be happy with that. So <clears throat> what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to do the first recipe in each section. 
there are 10 sections in yeast, and then the second recipe, etc., etc., on rotation. This will mean that over a month, I will get some variety, but without forsaking my choiceless agenda, which for me is a very, very important agenda lying at the heart of this experiment. For at no point in the next year, I have decided, will I be choosing what to eat next? I will simply be following the order of the dishes in each section of the book. Done and dusted. I'm also going to be guided by Baza here, that's Baz Schwartz, uh, who suggests that counterintuitively for the culture we live in, happiness does not in fact come from having more choice but maybe the very opposite, which I know is an incredibly heretical statement in 2021, where choice and convenience are now king and queen and probably live in a massive non-tax-paying palace called Amazon Prime. And yes, I too pay my prime tithes to the feudal overlord as much as I actually despise everything they stand for. Hypocrite? Well, welcome to my world, which is maybe your world too in some way. So, here are a few of Baz's guidelines, which are applicable even to our non-food choices. Number one, we would be better off if we embraced certain voluntary constraints on our freedom of choice instead of rebelling against them. Whew, hard one. Number two, we would be better off seeking what was good enough uh, what Baz and other social scientists call being a satisficer, instead of seeking the best. In other words, a maximizer, which is what most of us now are, and certainly I am, to a T. Number three, we would be better off if we paid less attention to what others around us were doing, eating, tweeting, Instagramming, and instead paid a bit more attention to being in the now and finding our bliss in that now, now. Whether it involves eating with care and appreciation, a perfectly ripe mango, chilled to perfection, lovingly sliced and coated in lime juice, or making something more involved but simple in its own way, like an aubergine lab smothered with shallots and peanuts, page 147. I hope you will join me on this journey. Here we go. My name's Steve Wasserman, and you've been listening to the introductory episode of Cook the Book. Next year, things are gonna change. Gonna drink less beer. Start all over again Gonna read more books Gonna keep up with the news Gonna learn how to cook Spend less money on shoes I'll pay my bills on time Find my milk